there is, you know, you, you made a point earlier about um, like discovering some hidden thing in a stranger. Like you see someone and they're wearing a t-shirt and you're just like, well, this is that, this is the kind of person that person is based on the t-shirt that they're wearing. And then you talk to them and you realize that, yeah, they're, they're into ballet or something like that. There's a really good technique that um, I learned when I was doing this, which is um, don't ask people what they do, ask them what they would like to do more of or less of. And that will get you a really interesting answer. Just, so, oh. just because they'll just be like, I'm a chartered accountant or whatever. It'd be like, well, what would you like to do more of? They'd be like, well, ballet. And then you're like, oh, that's interesting. Like a ballet dancing accountant. Like that's unusual. And then you're off to the race. But that's that gets to like good. understanding people's motivation and their individuality, that sort of stuff. Like that's a way that you can kind of break the script of boring cocktail party chatter and get to something really unusual and really interesting. Welcome to this week's podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're Steve and Dave. Hi. How's it going? Uh, okay, so there is great benefit of talking to strangers. Now, hear us true with this. We are super into humans. We really are. We always have been. And nowadays with phones, with technology, many of us are losing the skills of talking to one another and talking to strangers. And there can often be a fear. And today we talk to a really interesting man, Joe Kehoe. He's just spent a number of years researching the benefits of talking to strangers. And you might go, benefits of talking to strangers no way i'm scared Stiff but he strange. talks about the research talking about how it helps us be more empathetic be more sympathetic it helps feeling a greater sense of belonging many of us nowadays is an epidemic of loneliness and simply by talking to strangers can make us feel a greater part of the web of humanity in a sense of like oh i'm not alone and can really lift our spirits and help us feel better uh, one of the one of the things which i love most is he talked about techniques because many of us haven't flexed this muscle of talking to strangers and he talked about techniques and scripts that many of us, you know, you, you pay for something in a shop and someone goes, hi, how are you? And you go, fine. And they go, fine. And that's the conversation. We're both running scripts. But he talks about like when someone says, hi, how are you? You can go, well, I'm a seven out of 10. And they go, uh, and you can go, well, what would take you to an eight out of 10? And they go, oh, well, let me think. Maybe I just, and the conversation goes in a different way. And he talks about many different techniques and skills of relearning this ancient art of talking to strangers and that it is a muscle and that it is a skill and it's something that has that we all naturally feel uncomfortable and a little bit like i don't want to do it but then as soon as you do it there's so much benefits to feeling better and and also there's research showing that it's linked to longevity that not not only is it close um interactions or close relationships the importance of loose interactions equally affects our longevity in a positive way yeah anyway we love strangers. We love talking to strangers. We see it as something that has enriched our lives in so many different ways. I met my wife. I met many of my closest friends through chit-chat talking about the weather. Yeah. So, yeah, this was a great conversation. And it's part of our community series, which is all about building more connection in each of our lives. Fascinating conversation. Jokey home. Really hope you get lots of takeaways. Thanks for sharing all our podcast episodes on social media. We genuinely really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, really and enjoyed. And big shout out to the great Sean Cahill, the wonderful Sarah Fawcett for producing this episode and every other episode we've done beforehand. Hold your hat, hold your hat, and here we go. <laughs> but we're delighted to have this conversation genuinely. And yeah, strangers, like we're doing a, com- a, a, a series on community. So it's all about building resilient communities and, you know, almost in an antithesis of what's going on in the world now. And I remember at the start of this, the concept Steve was saying like, strangers are really important. Like we're so disconnected. Like I'd love to find someone to talk about strangers. And you actually reached out to a couple of people who'd written books on it. And then you've kind of showed up now and it's like, whoa, here's our man. Here's the main man, Joe. Right. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't plan to time it this way, but the timing ended up being pretty, pretty fortuitous. Yeah. That's a great fortuitous. I love that word. So, so maybe, maybe just to kick it off, like what is that? Like, what's the sales pitch? Like say I'm out there, I'm, 
I spend lots of time on my phone every day. I'm wandering around. I have my own little bubble. People kind of scare me a little bit. Like, what's the sales pitch? Like, why do I want to talk to strangers? Like, that's the kind of, that's the question we were just discussing there. Yeah, for sure. And everybody kind of feels that way. Everybody has a, a lot of misgivings about talking to strangers. Um, the short answer is there's like a growing body of research that psychologists have been doing over the last like decade and a half or so um, that has found again and again and again in different places in the US, in Canada, in the UK, um, in Turkey, all over the place, that when people have interactions with strangers and they don't have to be like long conversations, they can just be pleasant interactions. Um, it makes them happier. It enhances a sense of well-being. Um, it enhances a sense of belonging. So to your point about community, you know, a lot of people feel kind of a strange, kind of alienated. Um, just by talking to a stranger, like over the course of your day-to-day -day life can actually make you feel more connected to the place where you live. It can make you, it can make the, the place feel less daunting and less chaotic. Um, a really simple interaction can actually have really profound consequences. Yeah, that's yeah. the short the short pitch yeah there, there are bigger social benefits too that i get into in this in this book as well yeah, yeah. even looking at longevity i remember listening to a podcast by i think it was susan pinkert or pinkerton or uh, excuse me if i'm not getting her name right but she was talking about how in association of longevity in the blue zones they found equally as important as close relationships loose social interactions was so important for that sense of integrity which really affected our longevity and they found just just talking about the weather, just saying hello to the postman or the post lady going, how's your day? Little chit chat like that was so important to longevity. Yeah, it's, that's great. I mean, that's something called weak ties. So you have like two different categories of relationships, right? You have strong ties, which is going to be family and close friends. And then you have weak ties who are kind of acquaintances, possible strangers, people you just know from sight. So like, you walk by someone every day and you nod to them or something. That's a weak tie. You don't know their name. You don't know their story, but they're there. You can rely on them being there. Um, and it's tremendously reassuring to like walk down the street and see something familiar, you know, like that there's in a very chaotic world that's constantly changing, especially if you live in a city, having those little anchor points ends up being really valuable, ends up being really beneficial. Um, and those weak tie relationships, the more interactions that you have with those people and that kind of periphery of your social network, um, the happier you are. Um, it definitely seems to be like a quantity thing. Um, and, re and psychologists have found this on days where people had more interactions with weak ties, with strangers, with acquaintances, they were happy. So it really helps. I mean, it, it seems like it's such a minor thing, but it really is beneficial. And is this like, cause I know for your book, you did lots of research into the kind of the ancestry or the tribal elements or the basic, like, cause you kind of in this context, like nowadays where there's. I think there's 70% of us now living in cities or I don't know what the number yeah, is. There's, there's a lot, of there's a lot, there's, there's a load of people living in, in cities world. and cities tend to be, as I've heard you talk about, they tend to be kind of anonymity and they can be lonely places in spite of so many people being around. Like what is the ancestral roots to kind of strangers and like, what did you uncover in your research? Yeah. Um, I went, I went a little insane on researching this book is usually is my way. Um, I went back to like hunter gatherer groups. Um, so trying to figure out how hunter-gatherer groups interacted with strangers, because, you know, the pessimistic reading of human humans is that they're just like savages. And the only time we're being good is because we're like calculating, you know, but that's not the case. We're actually really cooperative in the, in the scheme of the natural world. We're very cooperative. Um, evolutionary biologists refer to us as hyper cooperative apes, right? Like this is kind of unprecedented what we do on a regular basis. If you put a bunch of chimps in a subway car, it would just be a bloodbath, right? Yet we can do it. We can cooperate. So I got really interested in that idea, the sort of evolution of cooperation with strangers. 
and went back to hunter-gatherer groups and like the rituals that they devised in order to make strangers feel less scary in order to like admit them to the group. Um, and they developed greeting rituals where these kind of stylized rituals but that would allow the stranger to demonstrate that they're not like a threat, right? They're not an agent of chaos. They're not going to kill the group. Um, they can show that they're respectful, that they have willpower, that they have self-control, all these things that we worry strangers don't have. So starting from there, and you know, once hunter-gatherer groups devised these greeting rituals, it allowed them to grow their social networks. It allowed them to expand who they were. And then you saw civil like, societies getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, other things I went through is like how hospitality to strangers started, which ended up being a super interesting um, topic because like when humans discovered agriculture, all of a sudden we were settled down, right? Humans were nomadic for 99, 95% of our time on earth, but now we can control the food supply. So we settle down. So now we have little villages, like little settlements. Um, at the same time, because farming became the, the primary mode of subsistence, you had a lot of hunters, like male hunters that had nothing to do anymore. And so um, there's a man named Martin Jones, who's an archaeologist who studies old, old uh, DNA. And his theory is that those men, because they were just at odds, they had nothing to do all day because people weren't hunting as much. They just left and they just started wandering. Um, and when they started wandering, that meant they started encountering these little agricultural settlements. And so now they had to figure out what they were going to do when they encountered these strangers. And the people in the settlements had to, just, had to figure out what they were going to do when this guy shows up, right? This random guy. And so, you know, the pessimistic reading of human nature is that they would just kill the guy, right? Like it wouldn't even be a question. Um, but instead, and I'm sure that happened, but instead what, what happened, um, what seemed to happen a lot more, or a lot more frequently was they devised rituals of including the stranger. So instead of killing the guy, they figured out a way to like get a reading on the guy and maybe talk to him a little bit, maybe give him a gift because we're kind of like, you know, exchanging things is in our nature. Like we like to trade, we like to exchange gifts and notions and stuff like that. Um, maybe they give him a gift, maybe they give him a little food. Now he's kind of indebted to them. He has to give them something like, and gradually they get used to each other and they kind of warm up and they can sit and they can talk, right? So the stranger represents kind of a threat but he also represents an opportunity. He might know something. He might just be good company. He might have stuff you want. He might have like a blade that's interesting, some kind of innovation. Um, and over the course of that hospitality ritual, they get to know each other, um, ideally, right? I'm sure it didn't always work this way. But then the guy leaves, he goes somewhere else, and now he has a contact. He knows somebody, and that person knows him. So if that person travels somewhere, maybe they have a contact who can put them up for the night as they're traveling. And what Martin Jones found is that like right after hospital right after agriculture started human humanity just exploded out across the world um, so basically those little settlements became like bus stations for like these roving men um, and it allowed the spread of people um, across like greater and greater and greater distances it was, it was an amazing thing it happened pretty quickly like within a thousand years like people were all over the place because they figured out how to do this they figured out how to kind of trade favors with strangers almost and put each other up and they, they kind of understood the benefits of just like talking to someone who came from nowhere um, and Jones's idea is that that's the cornerstone of human civilization, that idea of hospitality. Um, and then you could just go from there. Like, I'm, I'm not going to, I could go on and on, obviously, about this, but the rise of cities, the creation of mass religion, the creation of nations, like humanity keeps devising ways to expand the idea of who they are as a group, right? Like, it's patently ludicrous for me to have any warm feeling towards like a random stranger in America when there are like 360 million of us, right? Only by this like invented category are we countrymen. 
Um, but it's ridiculous, but it shows like this amazing capacity people have for like feeling that we're part of this person we don't know who we have nothing in common with who lives 2000 miles away. Um, it's an amazing thing. And, and, you know, I became really interested in that idea because most of when people write about people write about humans, they write about conflict. Um, I was more interested in the cooperation part of it and how it grew. And then, you know, to your point, as we're at a very historically challenging moment, how we can learn from some of those um, discoveries and maybe implement them today to try to deal with some of our social problems. Wow. I apologize for that stem winder there. That, that was, was brilliant. That was brilliant. For a long time. Uh, and that, that totally links into, we interviewed Bruce Parry, who he'd lived with 15 kind of indigenous communities. And he talked about how... Indigenous tribes. In, indigenous tribes, sorry. All across uh, And he talked about how approximately, I think it was 95% of human history, we lived as nomads, as you said. And it was natural to cooperate then because if you did, say, catch an animal, you didn't want to carry the full thing around to the next place. So you shared it around or you ate it. And you shared the load. So it was very natural not to hoard. And it was only when we actually became agrarian and fixed in one location that the sense of hoarding and we started finding, you know, we could live in more northerly climates because of we could hoard during certain seasons. Um, but, but, but I wonder if you talk about the importance of narratives, like you talked about there, the narrative of we live in America. We are, it's the same country. We can let's celebrate together. You know, the important, like, Right now in modern day society, we've noticed through even we've had we've had a number of cafes and a shop for about 16 years. And we've seen over recent generations, you know, less of a desire to small talk as smartphones usage has increased like that, you know, kind of the the more recent generation doesn't have the desire to talk about small talk and to talk. How are you and how's your day? And I like your jumper. Are we out for a walk? You know, this type of chit chat isn't as desirable. I wonder if you could talk well, about the relationship. possibly be to do with social media. Possibly. Could be to do with phones. I don't know. What, what, what did your research, did you find any in terms of that? Yeah, you hear that comes up a lot. Um, and I'll say that like part of my inspiration for doing this is that I realized that I had just stopped talking to strangers at one point. My parents, are, they're great at it. They do it all the time. They make friends everywhere they go. Um, they're just very skilled at it. They're just very like, you know, fluid socially. Um, but I realized I had stopped doing it. So I started wondering like, why did I, why did I eliminate this whole category of social interaction from my life? And for me, the answer was I was tired because I had a demanding job and like a little kid, um, but mainly technology, you know, um, I didn't need to rely on other people because I had a phone. I didn't need to talk to the pizza guy. I didn't need to ask for directions. If I was in a bar, I didn't need to talk to the bartender or a person at the bar for entertainment um, or to pass the time because I could just look at the stupid phone and like mainline Twitter until I felt my soul died and then, you know, go home. <laughs> um, so I realized that, that, yeah, technology is a big part of it. And a lot of psychologists, because um, they're teachers too at college, a lot of them told me that they find that students have a remarkably difficult time socially. They're super adept digitally. They're really good at digital technology, but they're really uncomfortable talking to people in like in person and they're super uncomfortable with the prospect of talking to strangers. So a lot of the research that's been done on this like just forces them to do that, forces them to go out and like put your phone away and pay attention to other people and kind of like, you know, give up control of the conversation and just let it go where it goes, which feels kind of vulnerable and it feels kind of chancy. Um, and the kids did it. And, um, you know, I read all the survey data, these studies and everything. And, and by and large, they dreaded the prospect going in. Like they were horrified at the prospect of doing this going in. Um, but when they did it, they found that once you got over that hump, once you got over the anxiety that we feel towards interacting with strangers, uh, it came to them pretty naturally. Right. And they, they were surprised because they were just like, I, I couldn't believe how well this went. I couldn't believe how easy this is because they'd been led to believe that it's impossible, that you don't do it. 
um, in their social skills had eroded a little bit because of the phone, but just this is our nature. Like this is innate. This is an innate skill we have when we don't feel threatened. We're very, very good at communicating with strangers. Um, and it's really cool to see the responses in some of these studies where they're just like, I made like a friend for the first time in like three years. Uh, like who knew that this, this resource was available? Uh, it's really cool. It's really inspiring to see. Wow. It's cool. It's, it's cool to hear. And quite for anyone listening, that sense of great, even if I haven't got it, it's in us. We, we can rekindle it. We can rub off the dust and suddenly, you know, find this ability to talk to strangers. Cause it's something like when me and Dave first started in the shop, we knew the importance of getting to know someone's name. You got to know someone's name and then you just quickly uh, over a number of things, you suddenly had made a friend and then it was a really good friend and then it was a close friend and then it was your best mate who you met over a bunch of apples because he loved apples and you loved apples and you like talking about apples. And we found like, it's like my wife is Polish and she often, she often laughed about how in Ireland we love talking about the weather. And she always kind of went, why do you do it? Like, it's just so superficial. In Poland, we don't have a need to small talk. And I was kind of telling her how important it is and how you know, it really helps build these social connections. I was kind of reading that typically, if I can remember correctly, it was a couple of hundred hours it takes to kind of build a trusted friend, whether I think it was 300 hours or something. Uh, I think it was 30. I can't remember anyway, but maybe maybe you'll know, um, Joe. But um, yeah, like I guess I know the importance of it and the sense of that this being um, such an important skill and something to develop that can enrich your life in so much. I met my wife that way. Dave met his wife. That sense of those, those little chit chat, that sense of, hello, stranger, can I be friends? Right, right. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's everything too, right? Like think of all, all your best friends were strangers. Your spouse is a stranger, you know, like everyone but your family was a stranger. You found a way to meet them and you were comfortable and you had like a lifelong relationship that really made your life better and hopefully made you smarter and a better person. Um, I lived in Ireland too for a little while, actually. Um, so yeah, I, I experienced that too. I love, I could just talk my way across Ireland. I loved it. Super, super conversational culture. Oh, we love the um, chit chat. We love the chit chat in Ireland. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. But the weather thing's really interesting. So, you know, like people always make fun of um, weather talk. Like there's a, there's a woman named Kate Fox, who's like a social anthropologist in London, or at least in England. And she did a lot of research on this where people always make fun of the English for making, for talking about weather all the time. And the, the joke is like, they, they can't think of anything else to talk about. You know, they're just unimaginative. They just don't have anything else that they're interested in. That's, they're just like, must be a listless, uninspired people. Um, but what Fox, Fox's theory is that the small talk has nothing to do with content, right? The point of small talk isn't to exchange in, interesting information. The point of small talk is to say, we're both standing here. We have not killed each other yet. We're both sensible enough to realize that we're experiencing the weather in the same way. And we get a little comfortable, right? Like, oh, it's a nice weather we're having. Yeah, I guess so. And then maybe you talk a little bit more, but it's the start of the conversation. Like it functions just as like a bonding ritual to allow you to like get comfortable with each other. And then the conversation small goes from there. So weather talk, which everyone makes fun of, is actually really important to social bonding. Apples, stuff like that, you know, having like something completely um. I thought I'd say an apple is insignificant because I, I love apples, but having something very minor in common with a stranger, like that makes us so much more comfortable with them than we would be otherwise. Like, think about how ridiculous it is that you'd be like, oh, you like apples? Amazing. We have something in common. Like we can talk to each other because we both like a thing that literally everyone who has access to an apple enjoys. Like there's nothing special about liking apples. Um, but that's what they call an incidental similarity. It's like a minor thing that you have in common with a stranger that just makes you feel comfortable. It, it feels like you, if you have this in common, you must have other things in common and therefore you can start talking. So almost like start following a football team or something. Oh, you follow such and such like me. Oh, great. We must be 
sporty people or whatever it might be. But uh, one, huge, yeah, that's huge, yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I was just reflecting on there is like this: all your research in this almost has given you the opportunity, and even through this conversation so far, it's made me kind of realize the amount of social cues and social kind of language and structure we have without being aware of, like you know, there really is like a, a kind of hidden means that like like peacocks you know the way peacocks have these little dances and they do all their things as humans there's massive amounts of it that we've all just become so accustomed to that where we don't see it anymore but like you know it probably does go back to evolutionary what, what times well I, like it's a bit like evol- like when you're talking more about evolutionary we were curious are people coming here to kill us could we feel safe how do we feel secure and over years we've evolved to kind of quickly filter these things and quickly make these la- layers of understanding and is that kind of stuff which you've understood over the last, like, has it made you aware that we are a very diverse social species that have so many different means of reading between the lines to understand each other? Like, you know, often it's said it's 70% of all communication is body language. But like often when, when I speak English, I don't know, I use the conditional tense. I don't know if I use the past perfect tense. I just speak English. And it's the same way often these subtle behavioral cues we just take in at a subconscious level that we're reading oh filtering is that is is that a huge part of it i wonder yeah it's definitely a huge part of it and it's also very importantly something that's lost when we interact online like we lose body language we lose the ability to make eye contact which is super important that's that's like the, the start of all interactions are eye contact um, we lose the ability to read like what they call paralinguistic cues, which is like the rise and fall of your voice that kind of denotes that you're a thinking human being. Um, all that stuff goes away when you're like going after somebody on Twitter and it leads to dehumanization. And I think that's why it's like it accelerates conflict, right? Because we're we don't see each other as humans anymore. Um, but some of those really subtle cues are really interesting, um, like where they came from. So uh, this is the stuff that I found that I really liked um pertained to something that um anthropologists call smiling cultures. So these are cultures where people are much more likely to smile, laugh. Um, they're more, more like emotionally attuned to each other. They're more, they're more like physically expressive. So the eyebrows go up, you're like gesturing. Um, places that have that, which is like a lot of the Mediterranean kind of, uh, Latin America has a lot of this. The US has, has pretty big pockets of this sort of thing. I mean, this was, it's big in Ireland, but I don't quite understand why Ireland's like this, but I, I might have a theory. Um, it's tied to immigration. It's tied to historical patterns of immigration. So places that have had a great amount of immigration from a great number of individual countries over the course of 400 years end up being smiling cultures. And so think about that. Why would a place be friendly if it just had a ton of immigrants pouring in for centuries? And the reason why is because you can't count on everyone around you to speak the same language and to understand the same cultural cues and social norms. So what do you have to do in order to cooperate with them? You can't do what they do in Finland, where everyone pretty much is a Finn and they all, you know, largely speak the same language. You have to gesture. You have to smile. You have to, like, find a way to demonstrate that you're not a threat, that you can be Brilliant. that you can be cooperated with. So you raise your eyebrows and you, you speak more loudly and more colorfully and, you know, like, look at, like, a lot of Mediterranean cultures where there's, like, a lot of gesturing with your hands and, and, and that sort of thing. And those people tend to smile more and laugh more, but in this kind of miraculous, weird quirk of human nature, um, they also feel happier. Um, like the, the, the kind of utilitarian smile they use to, co-op- to, to communicate with people from different cultures ends up just kind of making them actually happy. By pretending to be happy, they just kind of ended up being happier cultures. So like, and these are still troubled places. It could be like Brazil where people are super animated and really friendly, but it's still, you know, Brazil has a lot of problems. But I love that idea. I love the idea 
that friendliness doesn't come from being comfortable around other people. Friendliness comes from being uncomfortable. It comes from friction, you know, because we always assume that when there's social friction, it leads to fighting. And it does sometimes, but more often it leads to people making an effort to demonstrate that they're friendly. Uh, and I love that idea. I thought that idea was so much fun. Wow, it's very counterintuitive. So just, just so I, I try to It's a bit like, it's a bit like you go to France, like you go to France and you don't speak French. So you're like smiling at the shopkeeper going, hello, hi, you know, bonjour, bonjour you know, and then you're going, and you're pointing and it's that like, that okay, that of, sense of yeah. posing, not as yeah, a Or like as a kid, you know, the way mama okay. goes to Italy and she's trying to speak Italian. So, so I, what, exactly, one, thing comes, exactly. one thing comes to me is that, you know, I, I remember I was hitchhiking back 20 years ago to Burning Man. And I remember I was hitchhiking and I met a girl who'd hitchhiked across America twice. And I was like, oh, my God, you managed to hitchhike as a girl on your own and you were safe. And she said, yeah, well, part of it is that I stick my thumb out. And when a car stops, I go up and I talk to the driver and immediately I trust my gut. If I feel safe, I get in. If I don't feel safe, I say, oh, no, I'm not going there. So she said, I, you do have quite a bit of control. And a huge part of it was the sense of trusting her gut. I wonder is part of the reason for suspicion and, you know, threat and reason why we're, we're, we don't talk to strangers is that a huge amount of our life nowadays is in our head. A lot of it's disconnected from our gut and our heart. We're very logical, calculated. I'll only talk to them if there's something in it for me, as opposed to the sense of I'll trust my gut. I feel safe. There's a sense of trust. Let's connect. Yeah. For me, it, it's, that's definitely true. Um, we lack good data on the people around us. Like this is sort of the conclusion I came to. I was raised in like the era of like stranger danger craziness in the United States where like cops would come into your schoolroom when you're in like third grade and they would tell you that everyone you don't know poses a threat to you, right? Yeah. Like they're all rapists. They're all going to abduct you. They're all going to murder you. It was really intense in the US. The US went crazy with this stuff and it spread to other places too. I know it appeared in Canada. I know it appeared in the UK. Um, and that kind of poisons your ability to trust strangers, right? You're told as from a very young age that everyone you don't know is a threat, which is a ludicrous thing to tell a child. Like that's super unhelpful to be like, everyone in the world wants to kill you except for like the 12 people that you live with in your day-to-day -day life. Um, so that warps you. The media can warp you because the media tends to be negative stories. The internet can warp you because the internet tends to um, incentivize like negative interaction. And so as a result, as we withdraw from the company of strangers and we withdraw from the company of other people, we don't have good data on what people are like. If, if I interacted with the world entirely through Twitter, um, I would be like, people are irredeemable and I hope a meteor ends this thing soon as possible, right? Like people are a nightmare on Twitter. But when you're in, in the company of someone else, you see their humanity, you know, you have to be cautious. I'm not saying just get into a car with everybody, like trust your gut, you know, and train yourself to, to be able to read people. But that openness is really important. Being open to talking to other people, being open to the prospect of, of trusting someone else. Um, and I think that comes from having a lot of interactions, you know, um, as equals too. like um, not not being like someone who's just like routinely urinated on during due to his like position in society, but being able to have like real one to one conversations with people and real interactions with people. Um, you know, I'm not like a Pollyanna type generally. I tend to be pretty skeptical. I've been a journalist for 20 years and, you know, I was raised by a family of funeral directors. So I'm under no illusion of what the world is really like. Um, but doing this sort of work made me feel so much better about people because it gave me good data. I, it, it just allowed me to amass a lot of really positive interactions with people. And I felt better about the world at a time when people feel really lousy about the world. I think it was really beneficial. And what are your thoughts now, like post-research? Because like... 
you know the kind of, the narrative out there, as you said, if you if you just spend time on Twitter, is that the you know we're really we're people that aren't nice people at all, as you said, and you know at a time when the world needs more connection and there's so much disconnection and there's been so much mask wearing and there's so much media kind of dominance and stuff like this, I feel like the world needs more kind of trust in one another as individuals. Even, even right now, I'm reading a book. Um, everything. Everything you need to know you, you learned, learned in, in kindergarten. kindergarten. And it talks at the start, there's like a small little poem at the start and they talk about, uh, you know, when you're in kindergarten, it's like, hold your hands. But anytime you go out, hold hands and stay together, you'll be a lot safer. And it was such a simple message. And he kind of, the author expanded on it and talked about, you know, the sense of let's face things together. A problem shared is a problem halved. And that sense of, you know, the need for this. But, but I, was, I was just going to ask a question. And what are your, what are your reflections now, like post book and now being a voice for, talking to strangers like what do we need to do as a collective and how do we put this into practice and what are the benefits because yeah we all it's easy to see the bad bits yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think it's i think it's absolutely critical that as societies we make the choice to do this again like to do it consciously to be mindful about it to be curious to be respectful um for all those reasons you said i mean um the U.S. right now is falling apart. Uh, politics are tearing the country apart. And a lot of that has to do with those two sides being strangers to each other. They don't have any interaction. They live in different places. They just make up fictitious versions of what the other one is, and then they get really upset about it. Um, I did some, I spent some time with an organization that teaches Democrats and Republicans to like actually sit at a table and speak to each other and not claw each other's eyes out. Uh, and it was amazing to watch. And it worked. The, it, the work, the work um, is effective. Um, so from a political perspective, it's really important that the two sides actually like speak. Um, and that doesn't mean like getting together and screaming at each other over a fence. It doesn't mean asking people how they can be so stupid as to believe this. It means like moving forward with curiosity and respect and really trying to understand each other and understand that their motivations might be complex, that they are individuals. They're not like witless cogs in a big, stupid machine. Um, so politically, it's super interesting. Socially, you know, there's a lot of social upheaval right now where there are different groups of people who want to be recognized, people of different genders, different races, um, different ideologies. They're strangers to the culture. And so, you know, there's a tendency to just, you know, kind of shrug that off and not engage with those people. But it's super valuable to understand that their experiences are different than our experiences, that me as like a straight white guy in America, I'm not having the same experience of like a trans person in America. Right. Like their reality is different from my reality. Um, we can't hold the country together if we don't understand each other's realities, or if we don't at least understand that people experience the country differently, they experience policy differently, they're motivated by different things. All that is really important as cultures become more diverse. Um, it's absolutely critical that we get to know each other, that we learn to speak to each other. And then on an individual level, you know, the, the UK has been great about this, um, but there's what they call the loneliness epidemic. So rates of loneliness are through the roof. They're really high and they're especially high among young people, 18 to 22. Um, we've seen in the research that talking to strangers does two things. One, in small doses, uh, it lets us feel less lonely. It makes us feel like we belong. It makes us, it enhances the sense of well-being we have. Um, but two, it helps you make friends. So to the point of a lot of these students that um, participated in a lot of these, this research, Again and again and again and again and again and again and again, you heard them come back and say, I made a new friend. Um, and given that professors are always telling me that kids have a really hard time making new friends like in person, this is hugely valuable. Like this is an incredibly important tool for dealing with the loneliness epidemic. 
Um, and, you know, when people feel chronically lonely, they they fritz out, you know, bad things happen when a society is plagued by loneliness. That's what societies fall apart when that happens. So, you know, using this pretty simple tool to enhance that connectedness, make new relationships um, becomes of like paramount importance at a time like this. So to get practical about it, I remember reading in your book there that you actually went to London and you actually did a course from this lady. It was George, she did a wonderful name like Georgina, something or other magical name from like a from like a fairy tale. Harry Potter book. Yeah, Harry Potter book. But I wonder for anyone <laughs> listening who's kind of going, this sounds really cool, Joe. I'm really excited. I want to talk to strangers. I'm scared. I don't know how to approach it. Can I get their number? Can I text them? Yeah, can I text can them? Can we text them? Like, is there a nap? Is there a, is there a process <laughs> or an approach or are there generally, you know, things that people should be more cognizant of when wanting to approach a stranger and not come across a like strategy. I got a, a strategy yeah. or a muscle to flex? Right. Like yeah. how do we go to gym 101 or couch to 5K of meeting strangers? It's a great question. And putting it in those terms is actually a really good way to think about it because coming out of the pandemic, um, people have been socially distanced for a long time. They're going to feel a little rusty. That's completely okay. They're going to feel a little anxious about getting back into it. That's completely okay. People felt very anxious about these interactions even before COVID-19 happened. So there's like a compounded anxiety about having these interactions. So in the book, I kind of did like circuit training for, um, for talking to strangers. So instead of, cause I was really rusty too, because I, like I said, I had kind of withdrawn. Um, I wasn't very good at it. I was tired all the time. And I felt like my skills were, were kind of rusty, even though I'm a journalist. Um, I wanted to start from scratch. So I took this class with yeah, Georgie Nightingale, who's a genius. Um, she runs an organization called Trigger Conversations in London. She's super smart and really practical. And so I took her class and then, you know, she kind of took us through the way to get better at this, the way to build up those muscles again. And the way to do it is like, did you have to go to London to do the class or did you do it remotely? I did. Yeah. 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 I went, I did the class in person because it was before coronavirus. Wow, um, and I was also look. spending time with a woman named Jillian Sandstrom who's the, like the leading psychologist on this stuff. She's at the University of Essex. Wow. Um, but so you just, I wanted to start from the bottom. I wanted to start as though, because you can't run a marathon if you haven't written, you haven't run in like 10 years. Um, you have to start with a walk. You have to start with a jog. And so Georgie kind of devised this, this kind of, um, this kind of training regimen. And it started with putting your phone down. Um, when you walk down the street, pay attention to people, notice people. Like that's the first step. Notice that there are people around you, which you shouldn't have to tell people to do, but like we have to do it. We don't pay attention to the people around us. Look at their faces. Look, at, just think about them a little bit. Notice that there are people around. Um, after that, you can make a little bit of eye contact and maybe smile, maybe say good morning. If someone kind of makes eye contact back, you know, don't hold eye contact for like 10 minutes or something, but like, you know, just look at somebody and, and most people won't look at you, but the ones that do just like smile and say good morning. And get comfortable with that because that's super uncomfortable early on. Like I live in New York. People don't do that in New York. Um, but I found that people are actually really receptive to it. The ones who noticed were receptive to my smiling and saying good morning. And then you can go from there. So a really good training ground for this sort of stuff is if you're at a restaurant or you're in a shop, you know, like the parameters of that interaction are pretty fixed. You know what your roles are. You feel safe because you're in this public place. Um, just chat with a waiter or chat with the person behind the cash register, um, ask them how their day is and mean it when you ask, you know, don't do the thing where you're just like, how are you doing? And they're like, doing good. How are you? Good. Fine. Thanks. And then no, no information is exchanged. Really say like, how are you doing? I mean, a trick that I use all the time is, um, I always say like, you know, how's the day going? And they'll be like, oh, it's going fine. I'll be like, you know, people behaving themselves in here today. And half the time they'll just be like, no, they're not. And I'll be like, what happened? And then they tell you some crazy story about some maniac customer they had. And then you can have a conversation from there. But that sort of thing, you know, Georgie had two great tips that I use all the time, um, and they both pertain to this idea of scripts, right? Um, the first one is 
when someone says, how you doing? Don't just say, fine, how are you? And then they say, fine, and that's it. Understand that you're following a script there, right? Like you're not actually having an interaction. So be specific. When someone asks you, how you doing? Georgie's idea is she gives a very specific answer. She says like, I'm an, I'd say I'm about a seven out of 10 today. And they'll be like, and she'll be like, how are you doing? And so now she's, she's like modeling a different sort of conversation. And they're probably going to answer with the number because it's sort of rude not to. You can't just be like, fine, because then you look like a jerk. Um, they'll be like, well, you know, I guess I'd say I'm an eight, probably an eight. And she'll be like, well, what will it take to get you to a nine? And then they'll say something about their life, which is like, well, I got to go see my mother later. She's been kind of sick. Maybe she'll feel better. And then she's off to the races. Like it's, it's this magic trick because we're on these, on these scripts so often that we don't even recognize the people. It's just the script is a way of being like, we're standing here, but we don't want to talk. Um, using that as an opportunity to strike up a little conversation works really well. Um, and the other thing, and this is, a, you have to be a little more advanced to do this, but this is another Georgie idea, which is because we live in places, especially in cities where there's kind of a social norm against talking to strangers, like you don't talk to strangers on the tube in London, right? Like that's a big no-no, although I did it. It worked, it went fine. I think I was given a little more leeway because I was a yank, but still, um, you, instead of just going up to someone and being like, blah, 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 and talking to them, um, you have to acknowledge that you're breaking the social norm. So Georgie's idea would be if you saw someone interesting or someone was reading a book that you're interested in or they had a hat that you liked, um, you say, look, I'm sorry. I know we're not supposed to talk to strangers on the tube, but um, I just wanted to say, like, I, I was interested in that book. Like, do you, do you like it? Um, and then that that will reassure them that you're not crazy, which is like the name of the game. Like, you're not a threat. You're not unhinged in some way. It'll show that you're aware that you're breaking the rules. And people I find are often kind of tickled by that. They're kind of amused by the fact that you're doing this, that you have the audacity to do this. Um, and they'll talk to you. And, uh, and the research shows, like there are a lot of pretty influential studies done on mass transit in Chicago and London, that people are willing to talk on mass transit, despite the social norm. When you engage them, um, they tend to actually be pretty pleasant. You can have like a pretty good little interaction. It's just that everyone thinks that no one wants to talk, so no one does it. Um, but those sorts of things um, end up being really useful insights to use. And then from there, you can you can get avant-garde with it. You can like start talking to people. I mean, Georgie did this thing where she was on the subway one time and a guy was wearing a hat and Georgie just looked at him and went, hat. And that started the conversation. Like she's a genius at this. Her, she's got she's got the magic touch. Um, but the book goes that. through a lot of that. It's like varying degrees of difficulty from making eye contact all the way up to having a conversation with someone that like is, is a member of a group that you hate, you know, like conversations across like deep entrenched, like um, political divides or racial divides, which is much more difficult and complicated to do. But I wanted people to, I wanted people to have like a roadmap to getting to just getting really socially fluid. The script I, I, thing is brilliant. And I numbers. love the sense of having, seeing it as a skill or a muscle that can be practiced. And I'm going to go practice talking to strangers today. Because I think so much of it is perspective. Like I know often we'd go over to London and we'd go over as two excited, you know, young men. Um, or we'd often think of ourselves as boys in our shorts, running around really excited. We got two days we're in London and we'd often think we're on holidays, but we're actually on work. And we, we bring that kind of holiday perspective, like, I can't wait to talk to you. Wow, you look so interesting. You know, what's your name? You know, and, and you have these wonderful exchanges in the subway, like you said, in places where you're not meant to. But I think so much of it is that perspective, that sense of being able to see the wonder in every moment and realizing that this moment is passing. This is, I could literally be dead tomorrow. I don't know. And this could be my last time on a train. Because like I, I watch my children and they'll happily go up and talk to people and they have that sense of magic wonder, that sense of presence and really living the moment. And I think so much of when we're on holidays, we have this more rose tinted glasses. We're much more willing to, 
oh, wow, look at that. A dog. Wow, I love dogs. <laughs> you know that way? And I think the more we can have that magic, the more a sense of it's not a stranger, it's a friend we haven't got to know. And I think so much of it is that. But that, that's almost like I love confidence. That. I, love that. I think it's like a confidence and a skill because, you know, the way, like, we, we, like having a shop, we've watched so many people come in. Like, so we've had, we've had a vegetable shop for 17 years and cafes and whatnot. So you'd watch some young 16-year-old or 15-year-old scared kids start and they'd be really scared of the world and they'd be scared of everything and they're just not confident or comfortable. And you watch them over the, a series of a couple of months and a year and you see them grow into this adult that is confident and can deal with people and make people laugh and they can kind of run the show a bit. And you've watched this flower blossom because they've had to go through all these uncomfortable experiences. And I think like retail and dealing with people is such a great muscle to have to deal with, like working in a shop or a pub. Absolutely. Or a and it's a wonderful. Yeah, that's, that's so good. I love that. I love, it's I a love safe that. space. As, as you way. mentioned, it's that safe space where you can practice. Like, it's not like mm-hmm. I'm talking to someone on a subway and I have to use different tactics of how to communicate. It's like I'm serving someone. So maybe yeah. today I'm going to, we used to have jokes. We used to, today we're going to talk Irish all day long and just see if we can get conversations in Irish. And it just meant, and you'd say, you know, you'd have a little bit of that exchange and it just gave that sense of lucidness, that sense of slight craziness, slightly on the edge, but also hilarious. It gave people permission to be a little bit, a little bit or, more or, colourful. Or a bit like Georgie yeah. said, she had, she had kind of techniques. She had almost, she had little skill sets. Like I know in the shop, when people would be buying stuff, you'd go, oh, what are you cooking for dinner tonight? Or what do you do with butternut squash? And away you'd go, you'd be, oh, geez, you're from Iran and you're making an Iranian soup. Oh, geez, what's that? You know, and you could go off from that. So, so I think yeah. it is just having a few little, getting confident with it and developing those muscles. Definitely, yeah. And people are anxious about it and they think it's going to go badly and then they do it enough and they realize it tends to go pretty well. And then it just becomes, you know, like second nature. You just do, this is just how you interface with the world. Um, you know, you had said something about going on holiday. Um, there's a guy named Theodore Zeldin, who's an English, legendary English historian. Um, and he's made it his like goal in life to talk to as many strangers as possible. Zeldin's like 92 years old or something. He's talked to thousands and thousands of people. He's really curious about people. But the way he talks about talking to strangers, um, he frames it in terms of adventure, like ex- exploration, exploration. So he was like, I suppose I'm an explorer because what you do when you interact with someone is you have a bit of confidence, you have a bit of craziness, like an explorer would, like you're willing to take a risk, you're willing to risk failure. Um, But when you do it, when you get in there and you meet the Iranian who was buying beets, now you're like, you're exploring, right? You're getting this amazing chance to explore the life of someone who's different than you are. You get to just live in this little universe, this other world. It is like a form of travel. Um, And it's great. And it can work the way travel works. It can kind of expand you. It can challenge your perceptions. It can, you know, can teach you things. Um, It lets you grow in the way that travel lets you grow. Um, But yeah, it's just really interesting that you mentioned travel. I hadn't really made that connection before, but I love that. I love that idea. There's like freedom when you're when you're somewhere else, like you're out of your community. You're you feel a bit like an explorer. You feel a bit like an adventurer. And as a result, maybe you're a little more emboldened to be a little crazier just because if it doesn't go that well, like, you're never going to see these people again. Like, this is a freebie. Like, this is just a free, this is a free trip. Yeah, this um, is a yeah, free you trial. Can, you, can, you can actually have a lot it's of fun with like, it. I, re- I remember back when I was uh, single, I remember there was a girl that I fancied. I, I think her name was Mary. And she came into the shop every day. This was into the cafe. And I served her every day for a week. And I remember midway through the week was like, I'm going to ask her out. And I'm going to do it without alcohol. And I'm just going to go up to her. And I'm just going to say, <laughs> Mary... I wonder, will you go for a walk for me? And I remember I had to pluck the courage up for a few days. And we'd had lots of chit chat and it was like, I was clearly attracted to her. And I remember going out and asking her 
And I didn't care if she said yes or no. I was just so proud of myself for asking, like to, to go beyond that sense of fear. And I think so much of talking to strangers, even if the conversation wasn't great, it's, it's overcoming that hurdle, pushing beyond that discomfort and just kind of going, hey, listen, I'm a bit of a vulnerable human too. And I just want to acknowledge you and maybe you'll acknowledge me and then we'll all feel good. And I think that's so much of it is pushing beyond that discomfort. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I always felt, you know, one of the things that I thought about a lot when I was doing the book is that I always feel this weird sense of relief after I have like a pleasant interaction with somebody. And I was trying to figure out what that was, like what is behind that sense of relief or that kind of that like gentle reassurance you get after having like an even passably enjoyable conversation with a stranger. And I wasn't able to like solve the, you know, to, to really definitively answer the question. But, you know, the two things that could be happening is number one, we don't expect much from these interactions. Like we expect them to go kind of badly. And when they don't go badly, we're just like, phew, all right, that's pretty good. Like that went better than I expected it to. And it usually does because we expect them to go so badly that like it's a really low bar to clear. You're like, oh, they didn't shove me. This is great. Worked out really well. Didn't spit at me. Um, and the other thing is like this sort of the biochemical aspect of it, which is, you know, the, the, the chemical that the human body produces that helps us bond with each other is called oxytocin. You guys probably have, have yeah. looked into this. Um, we can, you know, I talked to like a leading oxytocin expert. And I was like, could we generate oxytocin in an interaction with a stranger? Um, and it hasn't really been studied. No one's really asked the question before because we tend to study oxytocin production in like between a mother and a child or friends or family or a human and a dog, like humans and dogs can actually generate oxytocin in each other. And he said that we haven't done the research on this yet, but like theoretically it's possible. If you have like a, if you're looking at each other in the eye and you exchange something, um, even if it's, you know, talking for like an hour, even if it's just like one of those little connections that just goes well, um, it's possible that your body is generating oxytocin, like this bonding chemical and oxytocin is a relaxant, right? So when your body generates oxytocin, you feel calm. So you watch like a mother nursing a baby. She seems very calm and very still. Um, there is the possibility, and this is kind of tantalizing, that interactions with strangers could generate this thing um, that actually like makes us feel more at peace and more bonded to the world. Um, and again, totally theoretical because the research hasn't done it yet, but I love the idea of it. Yeah, yeah, totally do. Me too. Uh, and what about um, like what about for introverts? So you know the way like how does this work? Like for it's, I imagine it's the same skill set. It's just whether you're introvert or extrovert, whether you're just being human. It's just a matter of cultivating these skills because technology, in a sense, as you said, is kind of getting in the way of us being present and noticing one another and acknowledging one another and looking one another in the eye and going, hello, hello, how are you? I like your yellow jumper. It's really nice. What's your favorite How old food? are you? What's your favorite food? <laughs> you know, those simple little things like. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, one interesting thing I came upon was a lot of the people who study this and a lot of people who like advocate for it. So there are a lot of organizations that try to get people to talk to strangers for myriad reasons. Um, most of them identified as introverts, which is really interesting, right? Um, because they saw the value of these interactions, but they were also uncomfortable with them, with like having them all the time. So they needed to create a way to do it that was going to be comfortable for them, that would allow them to benefit from it, but wouldn't like be exhausting and go on forever. Um, I thought that was a really interesting insight. So what a lot of these groups did was like they would create events or things like that where people would talk to strangers and it would start at a certain time and it would end at a certain time and then you could go back home and you could recover, right? Because introverts get tired in these sorts of interactions. Um, but there wasn't much difference between introverts and ex extroverts in the actual studies that happened. They seem to have the same experience. So 
you know, the extroverts are more comfortable initiating the experience, initiating the interaction than the introverts were, but the introverts got the same benefits from it once they started doing it. And my theory, and this is based on nothing but my own research, is that in most of the skills you need to be really good at this are introvert skills. <clears throat> it's listening, it's noticing, it's paying attention, it's not stepping all over somebody, it's not doing the thing everyone does in a conversation where you're just looking for a way in that you can talk about yourself. Um, those skills are invaluable. So I feel like introverts can learn from extroverts in the sense that extroverts are good at going up to people, but extroverts need to learn from introverts in the way that you conduct the conversation, in the way that you learn to listen to other people and you don't make everything about you and you ask them questions about their lives and that sort of thing. That's gold. Um, yeah, I, I feel like That's it's, it's again, this is just me you know, running my mouth here, but I, I do think just, you know, having talked to a lot of introverts and being kind of extroverted myself, I do think that both sides could really teach each other a lot. I love about that theory. That's great. That's, uh, I'll, I'll vote for that theory. theory. <laughs> I vote two ears, theory, one mouth. two ears, one mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should be doing twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. Did you have yeah. something to say? Yeah, I was just going to talk to like the sense of uh, when, when I was looking at your book, there was one thing that you acknowledged the sense of when you do start a conversation with strangers that you have to give permission for kind of to be unstructured and not necessarily to guide, to let it go where it wants to go. Not that like, I'm going to go to talk to this person, I'm going to talk to five minutes and we're going to talk about football for the full five minutes. That you have this sense of just let, surrendering to the conversation, however fluffy or however deep or however discomfortable it is, that you're going to just flow with it, that there has to be a sense of trust to the to the conversation itself. Yeah, for sure. And I struggle with that too. Um, you'd see a lot of people who are worried, who are worried about that part of it because we have more and more interactions digitally. And when we have a digital interaction, we control the interaction. Like we have control over what we say, when we say it, whether we respond, whether we don't respond. Um, young people especially, but I think everybody to a certain degree is used to having control over the conversation. Um, now, when you're in a situation where you're talking to someone you don't know, you're talking to a stranger, you don't have control over that conversation. You don't know what they're going to say. You're going to have to respond when they say something like you, to, you know, the surrender is a really good word to use. You are surrendering control of the conversation. Um, and that takes a bit of vulnerability and a bit of humility and a bit of risk to be like, I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm going to, I'm going to follow it where it goes. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I think for previous generations, that was probably a lot easier for, our generations, people alive today, especially like my age and younger, I think that's really hard. I think it, it gives you a sense of vertigo being like, I don't know who this person is. I'm trying to pay attention on five different levels. Um, I don't know what we're going to end up talking about, but yeah, but you just have to go with it. It, it goes back to the theme of being like an explorer. Um, sometimes you just have to follow the river. You can't just be like, I wish the river went left here. And then the river yeah. goes left, which is basically like how digital communication works. Um, you just have to let it roll. But the really cool thing is, when it does, when it just does what it does and it goes where it wants to go naturally, um, it will almost always be a surprise. You know, you don't know what you're looking for yet. This is, you know, back to the exploration theme. Um, you're going to go somewhere that you didn't even know existed. And that's the magic of this in a lot of ways. Because if you were just like, I want to talk about football and then we're going to talk about football, you already have fully formed opinions about football. You know, you're, you're, you follow it closely. But if you're like, I'm just going to let this person talk and they end up talking about something totally different. Um, it's going to feel risky, but you're going to learn something new. I, I mean, I talked to a bartender like recently where and I had to practice this too, because being a journalist, like my job is like just interrogating people. I, I did this in Georgie's class where like, she was like, so I want you to talk to your partner 
and like come away with something interesting about them. And so in like three moves, I had just drilled in and gotten something. And I was like, ta-da, I found it. I found the thing. And she was like, yeah, that wasn't a conversation. That was an interrogation. Like you were leaning forward and peppering her with questions. That is not how you do this. You just got to let it roll. But, um, but yeah, I, I talked to this bartender one time when I was practicing this and, and you know, bartenders are great to practice on because they tend to be super social and, and game. And, and I always find them to be pretty interesting and, and kind of idiosyncratic. Um, I got a lesson in the mating habits of the leopard slug, right? So like a little bit of back and forth. How you doing? Good. How's the day? Within like two minutes, he was just telling me all about the mating habits of the leopard slug. Uh, and the mating habits of the leopard slug are pretty interesting, actually. And now I know something about the mating habits of the leopard slug because I just let it go where he wanted to go. And that's what he wanted to talk about. It was, it was actually fascinating. It made it was a really interesting drink. I sat there and I had a drink and I talked about slugs with this guy. Uh, it. It it's great. amazing just beneath the surface. We're all going around with lots of ideas and crazy little universes within our head. And you might go along and think, oh, well, that person's just into heavy metal music. But secretly, there could be like a ballerina trapped, you know, in there beneath the layers that you've just prejudged. And, yeah. uh, and I was contemplating there when we were when we were when we were kind of getting ready for this call. And I was thinking that like strangers, in a sense, give you the opportunity to be new in every moment because, you know, with the, within your family or your friend groups, they see you as a certain way and you think you need to behave a certain way. Whereas with strangers, like as, as we've kind of discussed when we were traveling 20 years ago and we went on our little journey of self-discovery, each town you could reinvent yourself because no one had any preconceived ideas of who you were. That each time you could be anew, be born anew in a sense to that present moment, which sounds kind of crazy and philosophical, but there's, there's like a freedom thing. in it. There is. Oh, I, really, I, love I genuinely that. I love think that. there is. Why I, didn't why didn't we talk about this before I put this book out? I would have stolen that and put it. Up. That's great. <laughs> like that's a great idea. Yeah, but um, I think it because is. there is novelty. Like everyone around you is so used to you all the time. Like you're not going to surprise people around you so much. Um, but being like you're almost kind of appreciated, right? Like you talk to someone and they're like, "Oh, this person's interested in me um, because I'm novelty, right? I'm a novel thing for them." And they probably feel the same way because you're just like leopard slug. This is amazing. Tell me about the leopard slug. And the guy's like, "If my wife, if I talk to my wife one more time about the leopard slug, she's going to divorce me." But you. You're interested in this. You're interested in me as like a leopard slug expert. Um, but yeah, be, be new at every moment is a really, uh, that's a great phrase. And I think it links into that. Like, you know, the way, so people sometimes, like I sometimes think of myself, I've had some of the most incredible deep co sharing conversations with people, random strangers on buses or something or other where they've, they've broken down crying or things like this, where they feel like it's safer to share things with a random stranger than with their best friend. And they'll often say, I never told my brother that or my mother that or something, you know, the way that it's almost like that permission to something it's freer or it's safer. Cause you know, that they're not part of your world in a sense. Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's, there's a little bit of research on that too. It's called the stranger on a train effect. And it's that our inhibitions, inhibitions are lowered when we're talking to someone we're never going to see again. Mm. Um, partly cause you know, you're kind of excited that they're interested in you. So you tend to talk a little bit more, but mainly because there's not going to be a paper trail. Like you can say whatever <laughs> you want, as long as it's not weird, it doesn't freak them out. Um, and it's not going to follow you home. Right. So if I could like, if I really dump something on my brother, like something really dark, then every time I went back to Boston to see my family, I would know that that thing is like hanging over his head. Right. <laughs> I will never go away. <laughs> like I can't bury that at the bottom of the sea. I can't shoot it in the space. It's now just going to be there all the time, like a ghost. Um, so yeah, I think that a lot of people have that feeling of like, lowering inhibitions and i think it links and also into, like, it's, oh, it's sorry, like that idea of what goes when you, what goes on in vegas stays in vegas that type or, or, of idea or, you or know i would think it's almost like back to dating sometimes people find it easier to go of one night stands with strangers like because they it's can not be going to chase them home it's exactly they can just go 
free and and maybe that's not related yeah but maybe yeah. it is yeah there is you know you, you made a point earlier about um like discovering some hidden thing in a stranger like you see someone and they're wearing a t-shirt and you're just like well this is that this is the kind of person that person is based on the t-shirt that they're wearing and then you talk to them and you realize that yeah they're they're into ballet or something like that there's a really good technique that um i learned when i was doing this which is um don't ask people what they do ask them what they would like to do more of or less of and that will get you a really interesting answer just, so, oh. just because they'll just be like, I'm a chartered accountant or whatever. It'd be like, well, what would you like to do more of? They'd be like, well, ballet. And then you're like, oh, that's interesting. Like a ballet dancing accountant. Like that's unusual. And then you're off to the race. But that's that gets to like good. understanding people's motivation and their individuality, that sort of stuff. Like that's a way that you can kind of break the script of boring cocktail party chatter and get to something really unusual and really interesting. So there is techniques. Like I like that, yeah, the technique. I like the numbers good. one yeah. as well. So the numbers one is a How big How you doing, one. Dave? I'm a seven out of 10, Steve. Well, I'm an eight out of 10, so I'm winning. Yay. No, it isn't about winning and losing. <laughs> and then, uh, how you doing? Or it's like, what do you want to do more of? I think that's a great, te- like there is techniques to this. Like there really is. As you said, it's a muscle. It's a bit like if you want to be a major league baseball pitcher, there's techniques, there's techniques to how to throw the ball better or whatever it might be. And it's the same way, forming these muscles, getting your head out of your phone and engaging people and flexing this basic and, and, sociological and muscle perspective that, that it's an adventure it's an opportunity to explore and connect and make a new friend that type of thing yeah it just makes your life so much richer and, and more serendipitous and more fun and more and more difficult too you'll meet people who like challenge your view of who you are and what the world is but you'll grow when you do that it's it's uh it's pretty magical yeah so strangers for the world. joe it's been so interesting chatting to you can you talk to anyone about your book just tell us about your book because i know you're just released a book with penguin and that's how we got to hear about you and i've really loved the reminder and the importance of talking to strangers because i think it's something that we need to celebrate more in society and in our community yeah yeah it's a book called the power of strangers the benefits of connecting in a suspicious world it's out today actually Woo, go um, joe we're honored looks at it's, it's three kind of three parts. It's me learning how to talk, to get really good at talking to strangers. So I took the class, I gathered all these like useful insights that people can try um, that are all pretty easy and pretty effective. It gets into a lot of psychology research and political science research and sociology research about the benefits, like the social benefits of talking to strangers. Um, and then it kind of gets into the history of strangers. So I, you know, I was just really interested in the ways that people manage to resist the temptation to murder strangers and, and kind of figure out ways of working with them and bonding with them and all that. Like, uh, and, and I wanted to see how that resulted in like civilization as we know it. So those three things are kind of intertwined together. Um, don't be afraid of like the mention of sociology. I, I tried to make it as entertaining as possible because I knew that if it wasn't super entertaining, this thing would have been death for everybody. <laughs> like those papers are hard to read guys. Um, but yeah, but hopefully it's people will find it to be like an enjoyable, useful and, and inspiring read. I think it's brilliant. I've really loved chatting with you, Joe. You're brilliant. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah it was great talking to you. It's great talking to you. It made me miss Ireland. I haven't been back in a while. Where Where did you go to when you came? Even your name, Joe Kyo, like in Ireland, it'd be Kyoan or Kyo or right. Kyoan. Whereas yeah. it seems it's almost spelled for the American pronunciation Kyoan. Yeah, it's kind of a Gaelic car crash. Um, Cohen. So it's pronounced Cohen here. Wow, but, Cohen. Um, but derived from, yeah, from Kyoan and, and probably from Cohen way further back. Um, but I lived in Dublin after college. I lived in Rathmines wow. for a while. Yeah. And I studied in Ireland. I mean, I was very into Irish literature and Irish music and stuff. So I, I, when I was in college, I lived in Galway for a bit too. But I've been back in so long. I really want to go back. In, in half an hour's time, we do, we do Irish lessons with a friend of ours. 
and uh, we all talk Irish and talk history and talk everything and it's good and, crack. And, and he was a stranger talking to stranger he was always a stranger that ran and, and I knew he was into Irish so we'd just say Diagwetha Cara and that was how he started and then suddenly I realised I was into Irish so it was like Akara, can we sit down and have a cup of tea and talk Irish together? And now we have such crack, not like actual crack cocaine, but crack as in laughter and joy and friendship together talking Irish and how it's become something that's enriches both. But, but someone who we had prejudged as, oh, this, this, there's this man who just, he's an Irish speaker, he's a Gael Gore, he's very uh, rural. But he was like, he, he studied computer science in 1972 and is a professor of computer science in the 70s. So beneath everyone's veil are very intricate, or as you said, ballerina accountants that we just <laughs> don't know about. And I think that's a wonderful note to wrap but things up But thanks for your time, Joe, especially on publication day. We really appreciate it. Thanks for all your wisdom. And I hope your book just flies out the door. Loads of strangers buy it. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. This was a blast. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Cheers, Joe. Lots Mind yourself. Bye. 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 Take care, guys. Bye. That was such a wonderful conversation that I enjoyed in so many different ways. And it reminded me why I love talking to strangers and how much it has enriched my life, Dave's lives, and many people that I know. Yeah, my partner, Sab, she always talks about when we go on holidays, like she, she's an introvert, so she isn't that curious about people. But I need to go out down to the street and talk to random people. Like, I just love it. I have such a curiosity and need to talk to people. And I love it. And I really think Joe kind of validated the importance of it and why I get great joy from it. And totally. And I think, you know, for anyone listening, three basic practical things that you can apply to improve your skill is one, we all feel uncomfortable. Embrace it. Try it. You'll be surprised at how after the conversation, you'll feel more relieved, mostly because it's over. But as he said, we all have such a low bar going into a a conversation with a stranger that anything feels slightly positive. So one, realize we all feel uncomfortable. Two, try to go beyond your script as in like, how are you? Fine, good, great, grand, bye. And a sense of like actually engaging it. Like, I like your hat or even try the weather. Even the weather can feel so superficial, but it's a sense of, as he said, it's like a trust dance coming up with common ground and you can go deeper and deeper. I loved that point, which he said was when you're sitting at a dinner party or something when you're stuck beside someone, instead of going, what do you do? Saying, what would you like to do more of? Yeah, I thought that was a great And true that, you might discover that an accountant is super into ballet, ballet or whatever. Anyway, hope you really enjoyed this podcast. Uh, we really enjoyed it. I found it fascinating. I love the topic. And we really hope, here's a challenge to anyone listening. Try today to have at least one conversation with a stranger and just see how it affects you and see this as a muscle to be more flexed, to make you a more connected, more happy or more resilient, more longer living human being. Yes, beautiful. I love that. Uh, and thanks for sharing our podcast and social media we really appreciate it if you tag us on Instagram we'll reshare it and uh, help get the word out there because we hope these podcasts are helping people big shout out to Sean Cahill and Sarah Fawcett for producing this podcast we are greatly appreciative of it and do check out Joe's book Um, it sounds wonderful we've read um, a large portion of it it's brilliant so thanks Emil wishing you a great day and here's to meeting more strangers woo